All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve, and I'm the lead pastor. And um, before we jump in uh, to our text this morning, uh, there are a few important things I want to take care of up front. So um, first, I want to introduce, and go ahead, and uh, if Cliff, Caden, and Morgan could come on up, and and, uh, if we could have their community group uh, come up as well while I'm introducing this, uh, just come on up and, and let me explain what's going on. As many of you know, uh, at Trailhead, we take the mission of the gospel very seriously. Um, it is part of our identity. We are walking in Christ as a community on mission. And as we've spent a lot of time in, in Acts looking at, we, we focus on, on uh, local, regional, and international to the ends of the earth mission, right, in our, in our neighborhoods and our communities, re- regionally through church planting and internationally um, by partnering with people who are going to move out in the love and with the word of the gospel. Um, we have supported a number of international partners um, over the last six and a half years, uh, but we have developed our most significant partnership in East Asia. Um, since we launched, Trailhead has sent, and I don't know the exact number, but it is somewhere right around 60 people to East Asia uh, for um, uh, partnership in uh, carrying the gospel, and um, most of those folks were, were going on uh, summer um, trips to support the team that was there, so they're there for around um, two and a half, three months, somewhere in that range, um, but out of that, we've also sent around a dozen who have committed anywhere from one to three years, and our team leaders, uh, the next really seven to ten. Um, and so I, I actually consider this a huge win. Uh, this is one of those things that we prayed about when we started the church. We hoped that this would develop. Um, we didn't pick East Asia. It kind of picked us, um, which is often how God works, and it's, it's super encouraging. I heard once, uh, and, and it, I took it to heart, that the greatness of a church shouldn't be measured in its seating capacity. It should be measured in its sending capacity, because I absolutely believe that the gospel of grace um, should grip our hearts, and in gripping our hearts, it should free our hearts to generosity, right? It's the flow of, of grace, produces gratitude, produces generosity, which produces an increased experience of grace, which increases our gratitude and moves us out in generosity. If that cycle's actually working, we should see people moving into extreme forms of generosity where they're actually donating their lives to the gospel, actually moving out and, and um, uh, committing uh, over a long period of time. And so um, this morning, I want to introduce you to some more folks that we're sending out. Um, I want to introduce you to, to Cliff Daly. Wave. Caden Cramsey. Wave. And, uh, and Morgan Hissom. Wave. These guys are going to East Asia. Um, you're each spending a year, right? Yeah, so they're, they're giving a year of their lives uh, to, to go over there um, and uh, be on mission, um, connecting with um, a specific population and, uh, and serving faithfully there. And uh, we are very, very excited. You guys are going. Uh, you're going with our blessing and you're going with our prayers. And uh, we will be praying for you. Uh, if you guys wouldn't mind, gather around them. I'm going to pray for them, but I want you, this is their community group, um, and uh, would love for you guys to lay hands on them um, in a friendly manner. <laughs> and 
And let me pray for these guys as we send them out. Father, we thank you that you have entrusted to us the gospel, the proclamation of your victory over sin, over death, over our guilt, and over our shame. It is the victory of love. And you have given us this incredible message that we might be set free, that our hearts might be transformed, and then you have entrusted to us the mission of that message, that we might move out and share it with others in love, that they might experience your love. So, Spirit, we pray your rich blessing on these three, um, <laughs> three sent ones who are moving out that others might be blessed. Give them great joy. Meet them in the challenge. Grow them in grace. Increase their gratitude and give them great joy in their generosity. Bless the mission of the gospel and bless them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, you guys. I'm going to ask you guys to keep praying uh, for um, Caden and, and uh, um, for, for Morgan and for Cliff uh, over the coming year. Um, it's very difficult to live in a foreign culture, um, even if they do have a good team that they're joining there and, and people that are going to be helping them with, with navigating that. Um, they're going uh, to do a genuine and deep spiritual work. And uh, let's partner with them faithfully. Let's pray for them. And let's pray for the, the team members we already have on the ground there, uh, the team that is long-term and continues to, to serve in that environment. All right, we need to pause a little bit longer before we get into our, our text. Every week there are events that shake us. It seems like there's not a week that passes that there aren't things that are going on that... that um, require us to respond in some way, at least in prayer, at least personally in our hearts. Yesterday's events in, Charlotte, in Charlottesville, Virginia, require more than just a private response. Um, an angry mob of white men, mainly women as well, gathered to protest the removal of a Confederate statue, which is their constitutional right, um, but they also came together to celebrate their commonality in racism and hatred. It was called the Unite to Right or Unite the Right rally, and they marched under symbols of the Confederacy, the Nazis, the KKK, and other white nationalist groups. And many of them marched with signs that were emblazoned with Bible verses or under Christian symbols as well. The event was marked with hatred and violence. The most extreme form of violence came yesterday when one of them rammed his car into a crowd of anti-racist protesters. He killed one woman and left around 20 others injured, a handful of them critically. I also don't want to fail to mention the loss of two police officers who were responding to the scene uh, and their helicopter crashed and their lives were lost as well. All right, there is so much that could and, and, and really needs to be said, um, but for now, I really just want to make it clear that we denounce this vile display of racist hatred 
It is contrary to the way we were created. It is sin. And it is absolutely counter to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the faith once delivered to the church. Our faith teaches us that someday we and these white supremacists will bow the knee to a Middle Eastern Jew surrounded by a company that includes every tribe, every tongue, and every nation in love. Ironically, heaven is going to be the white supremacist's hell. But here's the thing. I think it's easy for us to see this news and think of this as fringe activity, fringe groups that occasionally pop up and and make the news, and, and for us to think that this is just an isolated event, and it's unfortunate, and we can denounce it and move on. Uh, but I think uh, most of us are recognizing that this is not an isolated event, and nor is this simply the activity of a fringe group. They may be on the fringe, but they are in a current, and that current flows right through the heart of our culture. So I just want to read a couple quotes and then pray, and then we're going to turn to our text. The first was a quote that just kind of grabbed me. I thought it was very well said. It comes from a group called the Preemptive Love Coalition. These guys are on the ground in the Middle East giving aid in places nobody else will go. Um, They are actually giving aid in Syria and in Iraq and in places like that where, I mean, they were the first people on the scene after the gas attacks. They were the, so they are risking their lives. Um, And so I've gained a lot of respect for this group. And, And they said this, let's not say, I can't believe this is happening in 2017. It never stopped happening. Racism is real and it runs deep. Let us open our eyes and our ears and listen to our black neighbors, our Muslim neighbors, our Jewish neighbors, our immigrant neighbors. Let's hear the lament, the cries, the pain of their lived experience. Love cannot look away. And to remind us um, that while we have the privilege of watching these things often at a distance, we have the privilege of staying silent, we have the privilege of staying engaged and hoping it'll just go away, Uh, I want to remind you that we are part of the problem when we do so. So I want to share this quote as well. This is from Martin Luther King Jr. from his letter to a Birmingham jail. He said this, I must confess that over the past few years I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor, or the Ku Klux Klaner, or the, but it is the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. 
Friends, this isn't just a social issue. It's a gospel issue. The gospel calls us to stand for love. Let's pray. Father, we want to lift up the brokenness and the hurt and the ugliness that is surfacing in our culture. And we know, Lord, that we... um, We live in the same culture. We swim in the same streams. And, and Lord, there are so many ways that we've been affected by our own history that we don't even know. And, Lord, we want to be people who are set free in love. We want to be people who are transformed by grace. We want to be a light set on a hill. We want to be a people who are are a representation of, a testimony, a witness of the kingdom of God in this broken kingdom of man. Break our hearts in sorrow, free our hearts in love, transform our hearts in grace that we might love. That we might identify those areas of self-protection, that we might uh, root out those areas of pride, that we might find humility that allows us to listen and be transformed. Spirit, you're the one that has to do this work within us. We pray for those that are suffering. Um, We pray for those who have lost loved ones. We pray for those who are mourning the injuries. Now we just pray that you would uh, protect um, those who would seek to establish peace Um, our police officers and and those that are first responders. I pray, Lord, uh, that you would give um, wisdom to those who seek to respond. And Lord, we pray that, that love might prevail. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, grab your Bibles. Grab your Bibles. We're going over to Psalm chapter 3 this morning. Psalm chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, just go ahead and grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, you're going to be going over to page 448. Page 448, Psalm chapter 3. Last week, uh, Joe uh, preached on Psalm 23. And one line from that psalm has just stuck with me and has been kind of echoing in my mind. It's a very, very powerful psalm, right? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. But then you get to this part where, where David says, you prepare a table for me in the midst of my enemies. You prepare a table for me in the midst of my enemies. That picture of sitting down to eat a meal surrounded by people who want to hurt you has stuck with me. Sitting down to a meal with people who are against you Not former enemies that you're now reconciled to. Not not people who were against you, but are they now like you. You prepare a table for me in the midst of my enemies, your current enemies, your unrepentant enemies. Man, that'd be a hard place to relax and eat. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're supposed to enjoy this meal, right? God prepares it for you. You're not going to (laughs) leave. He's like, sit here, this place of honor in the midst of of your enemies. You guys, how do we do that? How do we do that? How how do we be at peace with people who are not at peace with us? 
How do we rest in God while others are working for our harm? How do we forgive people who haven't and may not ever repent of the harm they've done for us? They may never apologize. They may never feel any sorrow for the suffering they've brought into our lives. I think Psalm 3 is going to help us dig into these questions. So let's take a look at our text. Psalm chapter 3. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so the background to the psalm to help you kind of understand what's going on here. Psalm 3, uh, the heading tells us the occasion of the psalm. David wrote this psalm um, as he was uh, fleeing from Absalom, his son. Um, you can read about this in 2 Sam, Samuel's uh, chapters 15 through 18 if you want to. Uh, in fact, I would encourage you to. You're going to discover Uh, Some interesting things. King David, the greatest king of Israel, had a royally dysfunctional family. Like, royally. Like, I'm not even going to go into all of the stuff you will discover as you read about that. But I will say this. Absalom was one of his favorite sons. And he tried to, Absalom tried to take uh, the kingdom from David by force. Now, many commentators think that this psalm was actually written... On the night as the two forces gathered on on both sides of the Jordan River getting ready for battle. Some commentators think it was written many years later as David was reflecting back on that evening and and thinking about it. Either way, that's the, the setting. Here's the thing. David has fled from Jerusalem because Absalom has has come against him with uh, his own army. And uh, he went and hid in the hills. And Absalom gathered um, tens of thousands of warriors to come against David. We know that because in the battle, 20,000 men um, are going to lose their lives. 20,000 men whose sole purpose is to kill David. Their instruction basically was, find David. They, They weren't really interested in defeating David's armies. They wanted those armies to come back to Jerusalem. Their goal was specifically to kill David. That was Absalom's order. Like, go ahead and you're going to go into battle, you're going to fight, but our goal is to find David and eliminate him. I've had hard times with my kids, but they have never tried to kill me. Seriously, this has got to be a bad day when your favorite son rises up against you. He had spent years, Absalom had spent years, turning the hearts of the people in his nation. So David had given Absalom a platform, had given him a realm of influence, and Absalom had used that 
quietly and subversively to start turning the hearts of the people toward him and against David. He told lies about David. He misrepresented David. He, he made promises about himself. And as a result, the kingdom was divided. And they were now rising up against him. And so his life is in danger. He is seated at the table of the Lord, surrounded by his enemies. The people that he loves. His family. His people. He had laid down his life for this kingdom. He had suffered immeasurable pain and discomfort. He, he, had, he had risked everything. He had loved. And now he was surrounded by his enemies. And one of those enemies was his own beloved son. And so I picture him standing on the hill on the far side of the Jordan River, looking at the torches of all of his enemies coming against him and gathering on the far side of the river, they're all there to do one thing, to kill him. And as he looks out across these thousands and thousands of torches, he makes this complaint, verses 1 and 2. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Literally, they were rising up. You can almost picture this as more and more people arrived on the far side of the river. And um, it's very literal. Thousands and thousands of enemies. But notice what they're saying at the end there. They are saying, of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Now, were they actually saying that? Like, standing on the far side, like, there is no salvation for your soul in God, right? Is that, is that what you think that's what's going on? They're, they're chanting that on the far side of the river to kind of, let's get in David's head. I don't think so. See, I think what ends up happening is, is there are two enemies at work here, and they're working together. There's the external enemy that is obvious because of the threat, right? He's looking across and he's seeing an army of tens of thousands of people coming against him. I think in our own lives we can often see the threats pretty clearly, right? When those threats come against us, when there's something going on and, and we, are, we are desperate because we feel the loss of unity in our family impending, when there's, when there's something threatening those that we love or, or rising up to ruin something that we cherish, right? Maybe the loss of standing or reputation in your job or in your community when there's a threat to a loss of income, a, a loss of a job or a demotion. When there is the threat of racism and hatred towards you purely because of your heritage, the color of your skin, or the people group you come from. These external enemies can be seen. The internal enemy can't. The internal enemy is the voice that we give to these threats. The voice that, that often comes in and speaks of rejection, abandonment, and condemnation. 
When we feel external threat, that internal anxiety becomes a voice that will echo our deepest fears. You have been abandoned. You are not loved. You will not be protected because God doesn't care. This bad thing has happened or is happening, so God must not love me. He must not care for me. Or maybe he's not even real. There is no salvation in God. You guys, this is the lie the enemy desperately wants you to believe. Of the two attacks, this is the one that's more deadly. Of the two attacks, this is the one that's more demonic. And I'm saying that like I know that some of the attacks that come against us can be violent and, 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 and hurtful and, and ugly, like ugly, ugly, ugly. But if the enemy can plant this lie, I think often the physical suffering that comes into our lives is the Trojan horse that the enemy uses to try to plant the lie. There is no salvation in God in our minds. And once that lie is planted, he's happy to let the trial and the suffering pass. And we think, whew, all right, we made it through, but the lie has been planted. And even though we come out of the suffering, we continue doubting the character, the strength, and the love of God. We continue harboring this fear. There is no salvation in God. David is under attack externally, and he is facing the attack internally as he gives voice to the anxiety he feels. And then he models for us how he combats it. And this is where it really gets insightful for us, verses 3 through 6. But you, O God, or Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept, and I woke again, and the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. The voice inside my head, the voice that I give my enemies, there is no salvation for you and God, is combated. (laughs) But you, instead of listening to the voice in his head, instead of sitting in the condemnation, instead of empowering the voice of his enemy, He turns in prayer to God, but you. David gives God the final word, not the accusations of the enemy. They say there is no salvation for you in God, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. As a warrior king, David understood the value of a shield. They would often, in those times, carry large shields that were designed to be carried in front of them so that as the enemy shot arrows, often dipped in tar and lit on fire, they would land on that shield. And and if they were ever completely surrounded, they would simply huddle together and put their shields all around them. You, O Lord, are a shield around me. The enemy brings an attack. The enemy shoots these fiery darts that are designed to land in my soul. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You are a covering to me. He goes on and he says, you are my glory. The enemy wants you focused on the wrong kingdom, the wrong victory, and the wrong glory. 
He wants you focused on your loss, your loss of prestige, your loss of influence, your loss of income, your loss of comfort, your loss of glory. David refocuses himself on what is truly glorious. You, Lord, are my glory, not my kingdom. I mean, he's the king of Israel, and he's, he's saying, you, Lord, are my glory, not my kingdom, not my throne, not my reputation, not the boundaries, not, not the nations around me who are afraid of me or the people in my nation who are singing my praise. That's not my glory. You, Lord, are a shield about me. You are my glory. He refocuses himself on what makes him significant. He refocuses himself on what is truly important about him. What's truly important about him is not what people say about him or what he achieves or what he accomplishes. It's what God thinks of him and what God has accomplished on his behalf. He focuses on the glory that God has covered him with, not the glory with which he seeks to cover himself. You, God, are a lifter of my head. It's a powerful image. When we are weighed down in sorrow, when we are weighed down in anxiety, God comes in and lifts our head. As we see him as our shield, as we we declare him as our glory, as we draw near to him in our pain, he lifts our head out of our sorrow, out of our shame. He gives us courage. He re-strengthens our spine. When we want to crumple, assume the fetal position in the corner because we're ready to give up on life. Because this has just gotten a little too much. He comes in and he lifts our head. And then he says, I cried aloud to the Lord. Now what's interesting is he switches to the past tense here. I cried. It could be that he was now looking back to that night. And talking about it, like this is sometime in the future, and he's looking back, and and he remembers that night, and he's saying, man, I cried aloud to the Lord, and the Lord gave me this supernatural peace on that night, and I was able to sleep. Like the rest of my men in the company, man, they weren't sleeping, but I slept. And when I woke up, man, I woke up refreshed. You know, sleeping is an act of faith when you're in stress, isn't it? Something really hard about sleeping when everything's going wrong. And God makes us go to sleep every single day to remind us just how helpless we are, just how dependent we are, that we are not the gods of our own universe, the kings of our own kingdom, the masters of our own destiny. We must enter this thing like death and be resurrected every single day. And David goes in the midst of stress and under threat peacefully to this place. And God sustained him. He says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. See, instead of filling his head with lies, instead of entertaining the accusations of the enemy, instead of of just just sitting in self-pity and in self-righteousness, thinking about how unjust the world is and how much this is just not fair, and how people who, who should be indebted to him and grateful to him are rising against him, instead of sitting in that place, he instead reminds himself of the glorious, humble truth of the gospel. 
that his glory was never dependent on the acceptance or the praise of others, that his security was never dependent on the approval or the acceptance of others, that his future is not dependent on their choice because God, the God of glory, is a shield about him who sustains him and protects him. Instead of listening to the words of the enemy who wants him isolated and full of despair, he he fills his mind with the words of God, a God who loves him with a covenant love, with a steadfast and firm love. And that reawakens within him an inner strength and encouragement that translates into an outer calm in the midst of stress and trial. You guys, the true battle is in your heart and in your mind. When you're in the midst of suffering, when you are being attacked unjustly, when someone has betrayed you and harmed you, you need to remind yourself that the truest battle, the place where you can be most really protected and most really harmed is is internal. It's how you respond. The enemy is seeking to use that suffering as a Trojan horse to plant within you lies that will rob you of strength, block you from growing in faith, eliminate your experience of grace, undermine your confidence, and ultimately lead you to despair. The enemy's greatest power comes when we believe his lies. You guys, Jesus rose from the dead to inaugurate a new kingdom with a new glory with a righteousness that is here and is coming we need to remind ourselves all the time this world is not our permanent home this culture is not the truest expression of what we are created to be and it will be set right. The wrongs will be set right. And the God who has suffered, suffers with us now. We are not alone in our pain. We don't have a God who stands aloof and separate from the suffering of man, but one who has entered in, become the embodiment of humanity that he might suffer, not just with us, but for us in the supreme act of love. But that also allows him in those places of suffering as David is hunkered in a metaphorical sense under his shield. He's not alone under there. He is under the glory of God, under the protection of God, but he's not alone under there. God is with him, identifying with him in the betrayal, identifying with him in the suffering, and whispering the truth. I will not let your suffering go unredeemed. I will not let a moment of your pain go without purpose. I want to be clear, this does not lead to Christian triumphalism, which I believe is a a very Western, emotionally stunted way of, of dealing with suffering. This idea that we just rise above suffering and we no longer even feel it, right? Jesus rose from the dead, so I will never feel sorrow. Jesus rose from the dead, so I will never be confused or have pain. Jesus rose from the dead, so I can triumph in 
all things. I will never feel sorrow. I will never experience pain. Jesus didn't rise from the dead so that you would never have negative emotions. You will have negative emotions. You will have fear. You will have pain. You will have sorrow. You will feel betrayal. It will rock you to your core. Jesus rose from the dead so that you wouldn't be enslaved to that experience. So it would not have the final word in the story of your life. The God who went through pain to arrive at resurrection will often lead us through the same path. There are two things in the psalm that come from this, and we can see this working out. The first is a cry of lament in verse 7. David cries out, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. Man, that's, uh, that's visceral. Right? Nothing cheerful and, and hallmarky about that. God is my Savior. I'm okay. Right? Now it's, it's like, God, will you smack them down? Break the teeth of the wicked. How, are we comfortable with those kind of prayers? We like that sort of stuff? Oh, Christians are supposed to be nice, right? They're supposed to be chill and happy all the time and You guys, the language of lament is the language of suffering. In the Western church, I believe we have lost the ability to be fluent in this language. In our addiction to our triumphalistic perspective of life, it should all be resurrection. It should all be happiness. We should be able to eliminate all forms of discomfort and suffering from our lives. It's a lie. Lament is the honest anguish of a soul before a God who can fix the problems we're enduring. It is the voice of confusion. It is often ugly. It is often really rugged. It is often exposing things about us we don't want to see and bringing things out that that sometimes we're afraid to even say, but they're the honest expression of our soul. You guys, when you are praying and lament, you need to be honest. Don't clean up your, your language. Don't pretend that you're, 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 you got it more together than you do. Like God can't read your mind. Hold on, God, let me just clean this up. All right, this is what I'm saying, right? No, he's, it's like Adam and Eve hiding in the garden. Hey, where are you? Oh, we're not in the bushes. God sees you in your pain. God sees you in your ugliness. He knows your thoughts. He knows your anger. He knew, knows your need for justice and even your craving for vengeance. He knows it. So bring it honestly before the God who already sees, already knows. Because when we bring it honestly to God, it allows us to bring it out into this place where God then can work on us and not just respond to us. Because what we desperately need in those moments is an experience of grace that is going to come in and meet us in that pain. You guys know if you've ever been in a fight with someone you love, which means everybody. There are often things said in that fight that aren't exactly what you mean. They just feel true in the moment. But often once they're said, that allows you to actually deal with them and the lies that are underneath them. Give God that chance. Be honest with God. Don't try to clean yourself up. 
Because that dishonesty in your soul blocks your experience of grace. David comes with lament. This is real, man. This is somebody who is mistreated in his pain, somebody who is suffering in betrayal, and he cries out to the one true judge, the only one who can really set the situation right. He's honest, and he's raw, and he's real. I do want to clarify one thing, though, because I think it'll help us. What is David really asking for here? Is he really just asking that God will give a divine slap to his enemies, knock out their teeth? All right, so the language here, when he says, I pray that you will strike them on their cheek and that you will knock out their teeth. I was reading a translator's guide to this psalm, so a guide for somebody who's actually trying to translate this into a new and foreign language. And the translator said, you need to realize there are meanings behind these words that, that are going to be different in different cultures. So like if you're translating this maybe into an Asian culture, instead of saying slapping them on the cheek, maybe you should say, Lord, make their eyes be downcast. Because really what he's saying here in that culture, to slap somebody on the cheek was a sign of high dishonor. What David was saying is expose their shame. Slap them with dishonor. Make them aware of their shame. Because right now they're so bold and arrogant in, in their wrongdoing, they don't even know they're being shameful. Make them aware of their shame. Slap them with their shame. Knock out their teeth as a way of saying, take away their ability to do harm so that they cannot ravage me like wild beasts. They can't bite me and gnaw on me. Take away their ability to do harm. Now, I don't want to take away the the visceral nature of this request. David is saying, if you have to physically knock out their teeth to do that, it won't bother me. Go ahead and do that thing, right? But what he's he's really praying here is, will you make them aware of the shamefulness of of their hearts? And God, will you take away their ability to bring harm? This is the lament of somebody who is yearning to be delivered. God, will you do what only you can do? Awaken them from their deception and remove from them their ability to keep bringing pain. He laments. Lord, intervene, step in, hinder their harm. But it doesn't stop there. In verse 8, we have a summary statement of the psalm. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. But there's, I think there's something so much more than just a summary statement here. I see something really profound. When he says, blessings be on your people, who's he praying for? Just the people that are with him on the far side of the Jordan? Or all of his people? even the ones that are on the other side coming against him to take his life. Blessings be on your people. David is praying for two things. Lord, take away their power to harm me. Make them aware of their their shame. Hurt them if necessary. But bless them. Bless your people. Bless the people who are seeking to harm me. Bless the people who are scheming against me. Bless the people who are intent on hurting me. Bless them. 
You guys, this is incredibly powerful. How can you forgive people who won't repent? How can you forgive people who have hurt you? And given the chance, would probably do it again. Here's the thing, you guys. Forgiveness isn't optional. Jesus made that incredibly clear. Right? The Lord's Prayer, forgive us even as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. There is a forgiveness in the economy of God that doesn't make it selective. You don't just get to forgive the people that you like to forgive. You don't just get to forgive the people that feels good to forgive. The people that confess their sin and apologize for their wrongdoing. That makes it easier because their sorrow at your pain, like they recognize and see what they've done to you, it acts a little bit like, like a balm to the wound and allows you to move back into at least enough relationship with them to, to extend them the grace of forgiveness. But what about those who don't? It's not optional. So how do we do it? Well, I want to make it very clear. I'm not talking about passivity. Forgiveness is not passivity. If you are being abused, forgiveness is not being passive in the face of abuse. I have run into a certain breed of Christian man that will hide behind Scripture even as he abuses those that he loves. In the name of the headship of the home and in the name of, of, of standing and leadership in Christ, he is a bully and a brute and he hurts the people around him. And I'm saying if you're in that situation, you need to let us know. I am not saying forgiveness is passivity in the face of suffering. Nor am I saying that forgiveness requires reconciliation. There are those who have abused you and who refuse to change. Here's the thing. There are people in my life that I've distanced myself from who have harmed me, and if I gave them more opportunity, would harm me again. And I've distanced myself. I have limited their access to me. There are times I've limited their access to my children. Forgiveness is not necessarily reconciliation. Reconciliation requires repentance on their part. Forgiveness. What forgiveness does require is forgiveness requires you to stop sitting in judgment over those that have harmed you. You know where you set up that little courtroom in your mind? And you sit in superiority judging them? And in that little courtroom, man, you make your case and you nurture your woundedness. And it becomes your treasure. That pain becomes, in some senses, a comfort because you feel so justified in hating them. You can't do that. You can't set up a courtroom in your mind to pretend that you're God and enact judgment on them over and over and over and over again. I mean, ironically, first of all, they're not there. It's just you. Right? It really is. You're not actually judging them. You're judging yourself. And the irony is it's you that you're keeping locked away. It's you that's in that cage. 
It's you that you're keeping locked up in the bound of the binds of, of bitterness and unforgiveness, of pain and, and of unhealed woundedness. It's you that is letting loose the poison. You guys, when you're doing that, when you're doing that, listen to me, what you're saying is there's no forgiveness for me and God. You're believing the lie of the enemy. There's no salvation for me and God. Because if there's salvation for me and God, I can trust God with my woundedness. I can trust God with those who have wounded me. I can trust him as judge. We need to let God be God. We need to trust that he will be judged. To forgive is to refuse and to sit in judgment. It means to give them over to God. And when that woundedness comes back and the pain comes back, to give them over to God again. It is an active movement of faith toward grace where we again and again and again and again give them back over to God because forgiveness is never a one and done. you got to do it over and over and over because every time the wound is reopened, you are tempted once again to open court and hold judgment. You need to give them over to God. Let God be judged, which means instead of listening to the accuser, you need to pray to God. Instead of sitting in the woundedness, you need to, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. They have done this. They have hurt me. But you, O Lord, are the lifter of my head. Forgiveness refuses to sit in judgment. You guys, I discovered a prayer um, years ago, really out of desperation. And what's amazing is I was reading this, man, I see it echoed here. And this is the prayer. When you're sitting there and you don't know how to forgive, and you're sitting there in the pain, you don't know how to let it go, and you're sitting there and the woundedness just keeps coming back. Pray, just pray this. God bless them. Sometimes those are going to be the hardest three words you will ever say in your life. God bless them. In uttering that prayer, you are stepping out of the judgment seat. In uttering that prayer, you are letting God be God. God, will you bless them by either restraining their wickedness and ending their ability to bring harm? Or will you bless them with the pouring out of your grace that enables them to awaken to repentance and be delivered from their evil? Will you bless them? I will not define how you bless them. I will not demand how you bless them. It's good enough for me if my heart can rest, trusting that you are God, and I am not. God, will you bless them. That's how you can sit at the table with your enemies. That's how you can forgive people that you are not reconciled to. God, will you bless them? And then trust God with the outcome. Don't inspect the fruit of your prayers. Don't be like, all right, God, show me. Bless them with broken teeth because I want to see him bleed, right? No, I, I, bless them and then walk away. Let God be God. Trust him. There is salvation for you in God. Let him be the lifter of your head. 
Let him be the shield about you. Let him be the protector and the giver of your glory. You guys, time doesn't heal all wounds. That's a lie. Time only heals clean wounds. And only grace can clean the wounds of your suffering. And that prayer is a prayer of grace. For them, but for you too. When you say that prayer, it's an act of faith that you trust that God is God. That he will enact justice on your behalf, but more than that, he will meet you in your pain and cleanse you and free you. Guys, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. I'm going to ask you to, just like God speak to your heart, we're going to create a little bit of space for response, put some questions up on the screen, allow God to speak to your heart. And then we're going to share communion together. We'll introduce that in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. <laughs> that you paid the price of our forgiveness. That you met us not only in our sorrow, but in our rebellion. You not only lift us out of the pain we've endured because of the sin and the wrongdoing of others, but you've lifted us out of the guilt of our own and the shame that would cover us at our own dishonor. Lord, free our hearts into the humility of those who have received the great riches of grace and are jealous for more. Not in a selfish way because grace never responds to selfishness. But as a delight in your character, in your love, and in the free-flowing forgiveness that comes from you to us and through us to others. Lord, I pray for my friends that are suffering right now. I pray for those that have suffered deeply, who have been abused, who have been hurt, who have been betrayed by those who should have loved them and protected them. I pray for those who are having that David moment of looking out and, and seeing their table being set in the midst of their enemies. That you would strengthen their spine, be the lifter of their head, that you would give strength to their faith and deepen their experience of grace, that they, like David, might be able to find rest in the midst of turmoil, to find sleep and trust and safety because you are the shield about them. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.